0: future, roving bands of comic book podcasts will savage the wasteland, once known as the Internet. One podcast, the Grawlix Podcast, may not be the biggest, may not be the funniest, may not be the most well-spoken. Wait, what was my point again? Oh yes, the Grawlix Podcast. Listen to it at GrawlixPodcast.com. That's G-R-A-W-L-I-X Podcast.com.
1: Hey everybody, welcome back for part 2 of Storytime with me,
0: Wyatt Weed. We are going to talk about his 2008 feature *Shadowland*. Dun dun dun! <laughs> and now *Shadowland*, according to IMDb, mm-hmm. is a taut reinven- reinvention of vampire lore. *Shadowland* opens in modern-day North America, where construction workers uncover an old stone cross and what appears to be a wooden stake. They remove the stake from the ground, allowing Laura, a slumbering vampire, to revive and arise from the earth. Beaten and weak, Laura is unable to speak, remember who she is, or even the fact that she is a vampire. As Laura attempts to make sense of the strange new world around her, she begins to remember not only an Id- idyllic human life in 1897, but also the handsome Lazarus, a mysterious lover who may not have had her best interests in mind. Soon Julian... A world weary vampire hunter employed by the church begins tracking Laura. But as soon as he closes in for the kill, he learns that things are not what they appear. Now see, just the the overall summary alone, that is enough to is like, okay, I'll watch it. <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean it it's it it doesn't strike you as okay, this is gonna be a blood fest. It doesn't strike you as Right, right. Um and Interestingly enough, I didn't read the uh, plot summary or anything before I watched the movie. I just watched the movie. Okay. And one of my first notes was, and I'm not calling you old by any fact, but you're old enough to get this reference. It starts, when it starts off, it kind of has this uh, dark shadows vibe. Yeah, I could see that. I could see that. Yeah. And that was one of the things I really liked about it because I remember watching, uh, Dark Shadows with my mom. Sure, yes. yeah. You know, that, that was one of the things we did, you know, when it was on. Yeah, I mean, we would sit down, we would watch Dark Shadows, you know, every day, and it's like, oh, this is awesome, which was my first introduction to vampires other than, uh, you know, Lugosi. So right. So, it was Lugosi, Dark Shadows. So, <laughs> big jump. And I remember Dark Shadows, too, and I remember back in the day, it was on after school,
1: and I remember it went... Like, it didn't dive in right away. It just—it was weird and spooky and gothic for, like, I don't know, six months or something. And we were all kind of wondering, where is this going? And then I think once Barnabas sprouted teeth and we were all like, oh, you guys are going into hardcore horror territory here. You're going to go for it. And, yeah, by the time the show ended, we had werewolves and flashbacks in time and all kinds of stuff. So. So but yeah I'm I'm not offended in any way
0: shape or form by the uh by the the dark shadows reference. So cuz yeah that that's about where this movie sits. I mean you get you, you get kind of the build up to cuz I mean like the summary says she doesn't remember she's a vampire.
1: Right. It you would probably find this interesting now that you've seen the film. Um Originally, the idea was the film was written and shot. And there is an edited version that I still have where you you don't know that she's a vampire until she knows she's a vampire. So basically, it was done in a way where it was tr- – we tried to keep it from you. We tried to keep you from knowing what the deal was until it actually happened. Well – that wasn't fooling anybody. And the first couple of people who saw the film, you know, halfway through the film, they knew she was a vampire. They, everybody guessed that she was a vampire very quickly. And I realized that in not, in trying to keep the vampire element secret, we were losing a major promotional item, you know, selling this as a vampire film. Well, I know if, you, if you've got a big, huge Hollywood film and you've got a name actor attached, like like The Sixth Sense with Bruce Willis. That's a big enough, major enough release that you can try to hide the surprise. You can hide the twist, and enough people are going to go see it, and there's going to be enough publicity that you can sell it based on the idea that there's a twist. Okay, people, don't tell anybody what the twist is on The Sixth Sense. When you're talking about a low-budget film that's going to be released probably directly to DVD, it's hard to get people interested in the film – just based on a twist. You kind of to sell it overseas and to get the horror magazines interested and to get the thing promoted, you sort of have to put the vampire out there. And so, the movie does still have a
0: twist, so, I mean...
1: Yeah, it does. But it, it goes from It went from being a two-hour film structured in a very linear way to we edited it down to about an hour and 40 minutes, and we took all of the footage and sort of incorporated the flashbacks more, and we cut it in such a way that you kind of know right out the gate. It's like, she's a vampire pretty early on, and you know this, and we sort of acknowledge that, and... That made the film move faster. I think it got more to the point more quickly. It allowed us to just put her vampire face right on the cover of the DVD. And so I think it was a good way to go. The film I wrote and the film I shot, the film I set out to make was exactly the film that I ended up with. I just realized that it was kind of slow and it was moving slow and... I wasn't fooling anybody. So in the best interest of like keeping the film moving and and making the film a little more engrossing, that's when we sort of recut it and and changed it up a little bit. And that's the film that you ended up seeing. So
0: interestingly, interestingly enough, you just hit on two of my notes. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Uh, It, it is kind of a slow burn at the beginning, but you know, and this is more for listeners who haven't seen the movie, you know, I encourage you to watch the movie. I, I it is a it, it's a slow burn at at the start. It's worth it. Sit through it, watch it. It builds a story. Watch the movie. It's available on Amazon Prime. You need to watch the movie. Now, the other note you hit on was the flashbacks. Mhm. Now, generally in movies, I don't like flashbacks. Sure. This movie, however, I loved the flashbacks. Well, and they were with Laura mute. being mute and not sure. able to tell her story. Sure. The flashbacks actually moved the story along.
1: And they were incorporated into the film. I mean, they were written that way. And like I said, we changed the editing somewhat and we beefed up the flashbacks, but The script was written with flashbacks in mind and the film was shot with the intention of, okay, and now we're going to transition to a flashback. And I think that's probably part of the reason why it works is because we intended it that way. And that was part of the mystery as opposed to being lazy and, oh, I have to give you some exposition. I'll go to a flashback. It's like films these days. It's like exposition. Let's show a photo exposition. Let's do this. Let's this film gave you its exposition in a very sort of purposeful way and the fact that she has amnesia and the fact that she's remembering these things it all I thought it tied together really well so yeah I'm gl- I'm glad it worked for you I'm glad uh, say so even
0: got- uh like Julian's flashbacks seem yeah. to tie in I mean seamlessly yeah yeah um, and to help you know help build his character help move it all forward sure to the 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 final scenes. Sure. Yes. Yeah. Which I um, thought was great because normally, you know, like I said, normally when you have movies with a bunch of flashbacks, it just it, it, it takes you out of the moment. Sure. And it, it seems to be harder to get back into that storytelling, whereas here it was all woven. It was a perfect weave. That's, I appreciate that. I appreciate that. Um,
1: It, it it's Tough because it's a low-budget film. I don't know if this was going to be in your notes or not. um We the film sits in a weird zone where it's a low-budget film. We spent about two hundred fifty thousand dollars making the film, so it's a very low-budget film. I'm I'm very proud of the production value, but as movies we've been talking about, it doesn't it doesn't hold up against a film like Avengers. It doesn't hold up. Against a film like uh, like Muppets from Space or even Steve Wang's Guyver Dark Hero. I mean, Guyver Dark Hero, we had three times the budget, almost four times the budget. So the sets and the special effects and a lot of the stunts were much more elaborate. I'm very proud of Shadowland. I'm very proud of what we got on camera. But here was one of the weird things about Shadowland. We set out to make a PG-13 film. We did not set out to make an R-rated film um and and this was pre twilight this was pre uh true blood um twilight was still a little ways off when we were shooting shadowland because we were making shadowland in like 2007 and we wanted the film to be available to everybody we were worried about smoking profanity Um, we were worried about all kinds of things. We didn't think we had that much in the way of scantily clad. We didn't think we had that much in the way of blood. Our focus was someplace else entirely. When the film got rated, we got the R rating, and I was astonished. And we got the R rating. You've seen the film. We got the R rating for the opening 45 seconds of the film. The film essentially opens on her back in 1897, getting a steak pounded into her chest. And the scene where she gets the steak pounded into her chest was graphic enough with, with, the, with the steak going into her and her spitting up blood and everything. That's what got us the R rating. Oh, come on. That's what got us the R rating. It wasn't the casual profanity or the casual smoking. It was the steak going into the chest. Now, I went to Los Angeles and I appealed the R rating with the ratings board. And I lost the appeal, but I've only had one film rated. But I have to say, my one experience with the ratings board was, it really does seem like the ratings board is slanted towards, they have a prejudice against indie films. I think that the exact same big-budget studio film with name actors could have been made with the exact same scenes, and it probably would have gotten a PG-13. Because it feels to me like... with a with an indie film like mine, they know it's not going into five thousand theaters. They know it's not going to make millions of dollars. They know it's not going to tarnish anybody's reputation. I don't think they care. I think they care more about the films that they know are driving the business. So and they'll see something things, on the back end. Yeah. So something like something that came out about the same time as Shadowland was Robert Zemeckis's uh, CGI version of Beowulf. If you've ever seen Beowulf, Beowulf the the PG-13 version that got released in the theaters was unbelievably graphic. But but there were all these cheats in it. And that's the thing they have trained the big studios how to cheat. Like if you're going to show blood like you you think of a scene like John Carter, the the recent Version of John Carter of Mars that was released by Disney. There's a scene where a giant monster falls on John Carter and he cuts his way through the monster and emerges from the backside of the monster, but they do it with blue blood. And when John Carter comes up out of the monster, he's covered in blue blood. Um, Beowulf. I used Beowulf as a counter-argument and said, how could Beowulf be PG-13? And they're like, well, it's cartoony action. It's not real. It's fantasy violence. You're stinking a-, a vampire. Yeah, and and so... Uh, my argument was it, anyway because of the way i showed the stake piercing her body and it, again if i had maybe cut away and not shown such an impression if i had maybe not shown the stake going in and then cut to a different shot of her spitting up blood but it was that direct connection of like the stake going into the chest and the blood being spit up in one shot that got us the r rating uh, and again uh, they also the ratings board they can tell you why you got the rating but they won't tell you how to fix it because they they don't want to be responsible like if they say to you oh just don't show the stake going into the chest and the blood spitting up at the same in the same shot well they don't want to tell you that because then say you do that but the film still feels just as graphic as it did they so, they'll let you go away and recut the film and resubmit it, but they won't guarantee you that you're going to get a rating one way or another. So, you hear these stories about somebody submitting a film 10 times and they trim a few frames each time until the basic effect is different. So, anyway, I argued unsuccessfully to get the rating changed because I'll be honest when we were making the film, Caitlyn McIntosh, who, who plays Laura, the lead actress, very attractive woman, um, a lot of complaints about the film is, you know, and people can be so crude, but yeah, a lot of the complaints about the film are that she didn't get naked. And I know I know, there's a certain – there are horror films that you see because you want to get scared and you want to see a good horror film. There are horror films you'd see because you want to see naked women get chased and murdered and you want to see how is Jason going to kill these people this time? How is Freddy going to kill them this time? You know – it's, it's one of those movies where people are going to have sex, and then they're going to get punished for having sex, and you want to see some naked women. Well, I in making Shadowland, I didn't feel that we needed the nudity. I wasn't out to make an exploitation film. I was out to make a vampire film, and I didn't feel that nudity needed to be a part of it. And Caitlin, bless her heart, while we were making the film, there were several scenes in the film where she has less clothes on, but we just shoot strategically in a way— you know, we get the patented side boob once or twice, but other than that, you know, she it's pretty tastefully done. She was willing to go naked in the film, and we just felt like, no, we don't need it. If I had known we were going to get slapped with the R rating... You might as well just said, screw it, yeah. go with it. <laughs> yeah, if we're going to get slapped with the R rating, then I might as well grab the other crowd that just wants to see Caitlyn get naked. And, you know, it, it's not a good reason to do it, but if you're going to get punished for a crime that you didn't commit to begin with, then why not go ahead and commit and read the rewards? Yeah. I mean... Exactly. Yeah, so... So if we had Shadowland to do over again, I probably would have amped up the blood a little bit, and I probably would have amped up the nudity. Um, and then whether there, and then there's a whole new audience that would have liked the film for no other reason than Caitlyn got naked in it.
0: And then um, you would have had a whole other audience that hated it because she got naked for no ex- other reason. Ex- exactly yeah so so there was a whole there was a whole thing there with
1: that movie but shadowland is definitely a film that gets challenged because of its low budget um there are people like you there's a lot of people who saw it and really appreciated it and really appreciated the you know the tender loving care we put into making the film they appreciate the story um but yeah then there's another whole crowd that's like Nah, eh, boring. Not enough, not enough blood. Not enough sex. Not enough nudity. Blah blah blah. It's like, okay, I understand, man. Go, go, go watch a big budget horror film. Go, you go right ahead. Uh, this is what we made, and if you don't like it, that's great. So,
0: <laughs> well, like the summary suggests, it is, it is a different take on the uh, vampire mythos. Sure, yes. For a lot of the movie, Laura's out walking around in the daytime. Yes. Yes. Now, later in the movie, you see her tempt fate with direct sunlight.
1: Yes, but she's um, becoming. It's not. She's like. She's not a full vampire, and she's becoming a vampire. And you're sort of seeing that process happen. And the the how and the why. You know, obviously, you have yeah. to see the film that out. But yeah, and yeah, and
0: it it it, it yeah. kind of toys with the idea that until you fully become a vampire, right? Daylight's still fine, which it's kind of an interesting take on the thing cuz like at first it's like okay she's a vampire what the hell is she doing out in the daytime <laughs> you know i mean yeah cuz um, th- there're just certain elements that get you know beaten into your head with the right. vampire lore that
1: well and it was funny because we had uh, we've had disagreements with people before who You know, there's the crowd who loved the film just because they didn't sparkle. You know, it's like it wasn't Twilight, and I have a whole Twilight thing related to Shadowland. But interestingly enough,
0: I said the same thing.
1: It's, but you know, thank God they didn't sparkle is what some people would say, and then some people would start arguing with you about the vampire lore, and it's like we're talking about we're arguing over the rules for something that doesn't exist. Exactly. You know, it's like the people who like no, that's not really a dragon because a dragon has separate wings. That's actually a wyvern because the wings are incorporated into the arm. So it's not a dragon. It's a wyvern. And it's like, we're talking about mythical, magical freaking monsters that don't exist. And you're going to argue with me about the definition. So with the vampires, it's like I, I kind of rebuilt and did my own set of rules for the vampires. Um. But yeah, we're talking about mythical creatures that don't exist. And there's some like classic stuff like out of a hammer horror film that I stuck to very specifically. And yeah, there were other things where and anything in the film that seemed mystical to you, like why would a vampire recoil from a cross? Well, there were very specific scientific reasons I was going to give for why or and like, why does silver work against a vampire? Well, because they're they're hyper allergic to silver. Or what? Why would garlic matter? Well, because again, once you become a vampire, you become hypersensitized to some of these things. And that's something I would explore, you know, in another film or a sequel or something. But I have scientific, you know, particular reasons for all of the all this stuff. It's just it doesn't all get to come through in the film. You have to pick and choose, like, you have to pick and choose which things you get to talk about in the film and hope the audience can fill in the rest of it. So for a viewer like you, it seems like you filled in the details just fine. Other viewers are like, no,
0: no, it's, it doesn't follow the rules. I don't like it. So, well, I mean, you know, obviously there's some, when when you're stepping out and doing something on your own like this, you have to do something that sets it apart. Like, sure uh the extra row of teeth is yes awesome yeah um there was one review that was like well it should give them a speech impediment <laughs> not necessarily <laughs> you don't really hear them talking that much with the no. uh fangs no no. The, no it's just the more to bite you with
1: and it's a transformation thing. She's not walking around with those fangs in her head the whole time. It's like she transforms, she bites, she retracts the fangs, she turns back to normal. It's just,
0: yeah, it's. Yeah, which, uh, again, I thought was kind of a cool. It's yeah. like, that's a way to, you know, said, so, oh, they didn't just grow longer teeth. They now have more teeth. Yeah, yeah. You know, and so I that's think a cool look at it.
1: I was inspired, I think, by. Um, I like the way the teeth were done in. Uh, Interview with the Vampire I think there were some different things done in Interview with the Vampire which I think is one of the finest vampire films ever made Um, and I wanted to do something different I just wanted to set them apart somehow it's like you can't, when you don't have a lot of money there's not a lot of things you can do but in just making vampire teeth well that's something we can do easily enough so I was working with a young makeup artist, Rachel Rickenberg um, and I got her right out of the Blasco Institute makeup school. She had just graduated the Blasco Institute. She was in her early 20s. And she'd never done a feature film before. And I got her to do this feature film. And You know, just young and ambitious and and ready to work hard. And uh, she came up with some great stuff. And and her teeth, I think I may have done like a clay sculpt on a set of teeth or I may have done a drawing on top of a photograph. And then she took the rest of it and just ran with it and, you know, did the teeth for us. And it's a low-budget film, but I was really proud of the slickness of some of the stuff. Like the contact lenses, the bloodshot eye, the teeth, um, very limited... Yeah, there was very limited makeup effects, but some of the things in it, like burns and scars and things like that, I was really happy. Just the simplicity of, like, the retractable stake where we pounded the stake into her chest, I was really happy with all of that stuff. And 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 I think it's little detailed touches like that that, that, that helped the film be more than just low
0: low-budget schlock, basically. Uh, the coolest vampire weapon I've ever seen in my life, the shotgun. Yes, the shotgun, which we did
1: some research. And we uh, apparently, probably on larger weapons, there's the idea of the flechette, where you have an encasing, like you're launching something, a projectile, a missile, and then the, the outer casing peels away in flight. So then... The idea that you could launch a silver stake at somebody out of a large bore shotgun—just um, we sort of engineered that and came up with that—and then we got to do that matrixy-style shot where, in slow motion, you see the you see the flechette leave the shotgun barrel, and then you see the pieces peel off, revealing the silver stake that then flies through the air
0: and hits whatever you're aiming at. Yeah, so we got to do the the vampire weaponry. Because I gotta say, he pulled the shotgun out. I'm thinking, okay, he's got to load a silver buckshot. Until he loads it, I was like, oh my god, that's (laughs) awesome.
1: It's really, the fantasy is, you know, as a low-budget filmmaker, you kind of dream that maybe a studio will see the movie, and maybe the studio will buy the idea from you to make a bigger budget remake, or maybe they'll... You know, they'll buy your version so that they can redo it themselves or pay you to make a bigger budget version. Um, I don't know that I necessarily want to make a bigger budget version of Shadowland. I don't know that we necessarily need that. Um, there were things we could not do. Like when if this was a multi-million dollar studio film, when you first see her crawl out of the ground, what would have been fantastic is if she had been shriveled and more skeletal. Like she'd been hibernating underground for a very long time and had sort of shriveled and dried up. And then when you see her come out of the ground, she's almost like she's like she's like a zombie. She's like a walking skeleton. And as she begins to feed just on food in general. You see her become more fleshy. You see her become more vital. And that's just one of those ideas, obviously, that I had to abandon early on because there's no way we could have done it on our budget. But if we could have done some more puppetry or maybe, God forbid, some CGI, I would have liked an old lady. in. Well, then that that's probably had we had the time and energy to think about it, I think in retrospect, it's like, yeah, if we could have found an old lady. We could have done that. Um, we didn't think about it early enough. You know, had I, had I spoken to you before making the film, you know, that would have been a Awesome idea. But I would have liked to have seen like uh, there's the cook in the diner early on in the film who meets her very early on. It would have been really cool for him to be watching her as she was eating and see her literally starting to (coughs) regenerate before his eyes. And see her flesh becoming fuller and see her color coming back, see her cheeks start to fill in, see the blood start to come back. That would have been really cool to do. We just, we didn't really have
0: an effective way of doing it in the film. So, I'm not gonna lie, I thought that pile of roast beef was a pig's head. <laughs> I thought she was just going to town on a pig's head. I was like, what in the crap? Let's, okay, let's just say for these purposes, it was a pig's head. <laughs>
1: But no, yeah, it was just a pile of pile of roast beef. Did you figure it out while you were watching? Yeah, was, uh,
0: you okay. know, once he started, you know, once he started putting it in like the to-go container, I was like, okay, that makes more sense. Right. I mean, yes. it, yeah. it was a restaurant. You know, a, a pig's head in a restaurant wouldn't necessarily be out of place. Right. But, Depending
1: on part yeah. of town we're in, yeah. yeah.
0: You know, for her to just go in and just, mm, pig's head, come here. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Unless
1: she was a kosher vampire, which would have just, like changed things entirely, but yeah, it turns um, out
0: she's kosher and a vegetarian.
1: Yeah, uh, there you go. That's rough. That's a rough vampire life, right there.
0: i say the, the one thing that threw me was, and now that you explain that you know she regenerates and stuff just by eating food, I, it it makes sense. Was I was trying to figure out how she healed after she uh, slept under the bridge. Right. She, she didn't feed. How did she? You know, because the injuries to the face are gone, her the the neck wounds gone. You
1: got me on that. I think it was just the rest period and the time, and you know, just just having some downtime. Um, again, you know, if we figured out a lot of it, but we didn't necessarily have detailed rules for for all of it. But, uh, but yeah, I think I just mean, more, if just yeah. eating
0: food can regenerate her. I mean, yeah,
1: because she's still the reason she survived underground for so long was because she was partially vampire but she hadn't fully transformed so again I'm messing with that whole thing of vampire human, vampire human but then again like is her are her cravings being met so all throughout the film she's craving and she's eating and she's hungry but she hasn't been like 100% completely satisfied which I'm sort of leading to something that's in the film that you have to watch the film to find out but yeah, so she's got a craving and there's a scene in the film where she wants the she wants the hamburger and she steals the hamburger and then she's like the bun I don't need the bun ah the red meat <laughs> so you know she's clearly hungering for something in the film and and the food is helping her her human part but it's not quite satisfying the vampire
0: part so she's still getting a little bit of blood just not As much as a vampire would.
1: And I'm happy that, I mean, the things you're talking about, what what I appreciate as a filmmaker is these were things that made you think about the film, or they made you think about more than what you just watched, and that that it was thought-provoking, that there was enough detail and enough backstory that it made you think about what was going on. There's so many low-budget films, I think, that they just are what they are. They're on the surface— It's a horror film or it's an adventure film or it's a whatever, and what you see is what you get. What I appreciate about Shadowland is that the people who see the film, who really get into it, they see all the background. They see the details. It makes them think about what's going on. And the fact that you have questions – I'm more excited that you have questions. Even if I don't have answers, the fact that you have questions or that you saw things in the film that made you ask questions – I, I like that. I appreciate that, that it wasn't just, you know, eh, she didn't get naked, and you were done with it. I mean, the fact that there was more to it than that um, makes me happy.
0: Well, see, I mean, there, there are some—I'm a huge fan of low-budget horror films, especially now, uh, because anymore, a lot of the lower-budget horror films can be better than the blockbuster horror films. Yes. and Yes. some of them you just watch to watch. I mean, there's one called— Alligator. It's a good bad movie. I mean,
1: <laughs> are we talking about the one from like nineteen eighty? Yeah, like the the Robert Forster one. Yeah, that one. Okay, yes, yes.
0: It's a good bad movie. Yes. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. You know, I mean, it, it is solidly in the B horror movie category. You know, but with with Shadowland, you know, you, you introduce some elements to the movies. That like there's an, there's also an overarching element that you don't think about with vampires. There's the good, neutral, and bad elements that you put in. Yes,
1: yes, uh, very much so.
0: You know, when it came to hunting vampires, so you, you you put in the idea, and I mean, you know, Angel, uh, the series Angel toyed with it a little bit. But, yes. and that was more of a redemption story. But this was, you could have a good vampire, a vampire who's just there. Like, I mean, you you played with, like, the D&D roles of good, yes. neutral, and bad, which, honestly, I would really like to see played out more in a follow-up story. Sure, absolutely.
1: Well, and... If you're a vampire, then over an extended period of time, you you end up with your vampires. And they they sort of played with this a little bit in uh, Interview with a Vampire, at least the film. I've never read the book. But in the film Interview with a vampire, clearly Lestat is a vampire who's he's been a vampire for a long time. He's kind of lost a lot of his humanity. He views human he, he views humankind as food and cattle, and then you've got Louis who has just become a vampire, and he's having a hard time with the idea of taking a human life and he has a sense of morality still about him. And ultimately Louis and Lestat part ways because Lestat is such a a corrupted guy and louis still has a sense of morality on some level and in shadowland yeah i very much wanted to play with the idea of just because just because you're a vampire doesn't mean you just automatically check your morality at the door you still have you know you still are who you are now you have powers to contend with it's almost no different than if you're granted powers in society like say you're a lowly. <laughs> exactly. Let's, let's say you suddenly have political power. You're the same person you were, but now you have power and you have influence and you can do things. Um, And much like myself, let's say you're an actor or a wannabe filmmaker and suddenly here, here's, here's a quarter of a million dollars. You are now the director. You're not only the director, you're the writer producer director. You are one of those rare creatures on the face of the earth who can blow smoke. Blow smoke up his own ass now. You know, you you are the writer, producer, director of the film. What are you going to do with the power? You can pretty much make anything happen on screen now. So I I love the idea that just because, you know, so many of the best comic books play with this this too. Like one of my favorites, um, The Dark Knight Returns. Um, plays with these shades of gray and you know batman and superman and what what do you do when batman doesn't care anymore what do you what do you do when batman doesn't care what the government says what do you do when superman now has bowed down to governmental pressure and is going to do what the president says regardless what he's capable of doing himself um what do you do when, you know, an ultimate chaotic neutral like Batman goes up against a lawful good like Superman? Um, people are always saying, well, come on, Superman's going to win in a fight. And it's like, people often forget that Superman at his core is a good guy. And Batman Bat- can fight dirty. Batman at his core is a tricky bastard who will, who will get you. So yeah, the, I love the concept. I love playing with that. If, uh, we've talked about the idea of going on with the the Shadowlands story and part of what i'd love to do um you and i've talked before this interview um before this podcast you and i've talked about the idea of a sequel to Shadowland and i love the idea of a sequel to Shadowland not giving anything away but when you see the film there are clearly elements brought up in the film where Where's it going from here? What's the next step? And the film was successful, but it wasn't successful enough. You know, I I couldn't go back to the investors and say, hey, give me more money. We've got to make a sequel. We're going to make more money. I think we were lucky to do as well as we did because side trip here. One of the interesting things that happened with Shadowland is we made Shadowland. We shot it in 2007. It was pretty much ready to go in 2008. But getting distribution on a low-budget horror film is – It should have been easy. There was a point in time in history where you make a low-budget horror film, you get it out there to all the mom-and-pop video stores, you make a $200,000 horror film, you're going to make a million bucks. That's just kind of the mold, and that's kind of how things worked. Well, around 2008, there was this little thing called the stock market crash, where the (laughs) the housing industry went in the toilet, the stock market crashed finances changed. A lot of mom and pops closed up. Uh, There were like 30,000 video stores in the country then, and a lot of them went away. And then there was the emergence of this thing called Netflix. And while I, I like and respect Netflix, and I think they're doing amazing things, when we originally started working on selling Shadowland they were projecting sales of, like, 50,000 DVD units alone, which which on its own would have recouped our budget and and made us money. And I think we ended up doing – in the end, we ended up doing about 10,000 DVDs, which was good. But it was – we did a fifth of the DVD sales. We had things happen to us like Blockbuster submitted a – remember Blockbuster, kids? <laughs> that belongs in a museum. Yeah. Blockbuster submitted a, a purchase order to us for like 2,500 DVDs and then contacted us back and said, do us a favor, we're going through some restructuring, we're going through some stuff, hang on to the PO, we'll talk to you again after January, and we'll we'll get this going again. And, and well, we closed. Yeah, basically, Blockbuster never recovered. And there were all these outlets, and basically, right on the cusp of Shadowland being released, and, and everybody makes excuses for for failure, but right on the cusp of Shadowland being released, we saw the collapse of the home DVD market. It just literally went in the toilet. And the movie still did pretty well. We got a lot of overseas play. We sold in a lot of overseas markets, and ultimately we did okay. I think if we had released even six months a year earlier, because then going into 2008, this little thing came out of the woodwork called dunta Da Twilight. So Twilight came from out of nowhere. And in literally like a six or nine month period, you started hearing about these Twilight books. Vampires were
0: everywhere.
1: Yes. You started hearing about this woman, Stephanie. I don't even remember her last name anymore. The woman who wrote the Twilight books. And and then we were literally going to, uh, we were going to meet with the sci-fi channel at, uh, San Diego Comic Con in the summer of 2008, we were going to meet with Sci-Fi to talk to them about Shadowland being on the Sci-Fi Channel. As we went to Comic Con, and as Twilight was surfacing, we started seeing ads for True Blood. So we went from like being the first of a new wave of vampire films to kind of picking up the tail end because by the time the deal got made by the time we got out there twilight had already hit true blood had already hit now it felt like we were picking up the tail end when when we were actually were doing vampires at a point when nobody was we ended up coming out after the fact so so that kind of played against us but you know these are all just excuses and ultimately the film was released and ultimately the film was pretty successful um but I would love to do a sequel, and what I've thought about is I've been working on a novelization of Shadowland because so many more elaborate things I'd like to do with the film and so much more backstory that could be told. So I'm, I'm like a 100 pages into this novelization that I eventually want to finish and publish. And if the novelization takes off on its own, then what I could do is sort of do a combination novel-slash-movie sequel, but in novel form. And I have a whole plot plotted out where where the story goes, who's involved, what backstories you get, the logical progression of everything portrayed in the first film you would get in a sequel novel. Um, So it's something I'd love to do. It's a a direction I'd love to go in. Um, Another little note here on the whole Shadowland distribution thing is, interestingly enough, we got one thing we were incredibly successful at is we had great festival play throughout the world shadowland probably played at 20 or 25 festivals throughout the world south america greece england all across the united states we had great success at film festivals and we took home i don't know we want to we pocketed something like 10 or 12 awards at various festivals we got some best of we got some horror festival love our lead actress caitlin McIntosh picked up a best acting award at a couple of festivals we really did well on the festival circuit but we got bumped a couple of times because we were coming out right about the time let the right one in was coming mm. and we literally got contacted i i think twice we got contacted by a festival that said it's down to your film or Let the Right One In. And you know that Let the Right One In had a lot of publicity. It had a lot of recognition. And we got bumped a couple of times for Let the Right One In. I'm like, well, okay, if you're going to get bumped for something, at least at least you're getting bumped for Let the Right One In and not, you know,
0: some stupid... Say, at least you're getting bumped for yeah. the right one.
1: Yes, exactly. We, you know, bump the right one. So, yeah, rather than getting bumped for some stupid Charlie Band you know, low budget film, we were getting bumped for a really cool foreign film. Um, So that was that was kind of a badge of honor. It's like, you know, to know that you were in the running right next to Let the Right One In was was a good feeling. That was a really good feeling. It didn't help us ultimately make more money, but it was a good feeling.
0: So uh, when we were talking about your uh, novel novelization idea, sure, I had an idea on what you could do, and I wanted to wait until we were recording to present it to you because I wanted your reaction okay. to be genuine. Okay, you could get it done faster and add another feather to your cap. Okay, instead of a novel, how about a graphic novel?
1: You know, I knew you were gonna say that. Here's the interesting thing about and the
0: graphic. As you're doing these conventions, you have a nice stack of them on your uh, table.
1: Yeah, I like that idea um and really honestly it's something that's been lightly explored and there's no delicate way for me to say this so i apologize to artists out there who might hear this but one of the big issues with the graphic novel because it's something we've thought about now the 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 actor who is in the film who plays the vampire hunter jason contini jason is an artist a comic book artist in his own right and he and his friend nicholas hearn they've done a series of different comic books themselves they did a series called legacies end. um and he's 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 done a lot of comic book art himself, and I think he toyed with the idea of being a comic book artist. Um, he's per- primarily an actor, and now he's working on his own filmmaking that he's getting into. But Jason at one point had expressed interest in doing a graphic version of Shadowland. And there's even a poster that he did. He's done this very cool poster of Laura as a fully transformed vampire with wings sprouting out of her back
0: uh,
1: standing on a pile of skulls. And I actually at one point did a a sculpted statue of Laura standing on a pile of skulls that we did as a fundraiser to raise money for and sold the statue to this guy. Um, And then I've had, and here's the part I want to be careful about, I've had other artists come to me and say, hey man, have you ever thought about a Shadowline graphic novel, but I'm not a fan of their artwork. Um, And Jason's artwork, to be honest, even Jason's artwork, um, I I appreciate his artwork. I wasn't a big fan of his style, but it's funny his style has now changed and it's evolved a lot since then. And I actually really like his style more now than I did then. But the trick is then finding uh, an artist whose style you like and whose style you want and then the question is, are you are you paying for them to do it the way you want to do it, so that it's your property and it's it's under your control, or do you want to partner up with somebody and let them have some fun with it? And so that's that's really the thing. But I'm totally with you, and on the list of many things that I'd like to do, the idea of graphic novel is definitely one of them. Because you, you would
0: definitely get to uh, explore yeah. it a lot deeper.
1: Yes, and when I say things like. She emerges from the ground as a skeletonized vampire and then begins to flesh up and recover. A comic book version, we could do that easily. And, you know, some of the more advanced battle scenes and fight scenes and action that I imagined could be done much more easily in the, in the comic book realm. And then when you go into the quote unquote sequel, you're out of the novelization and you're into – clear blue sky you're into doing just straight up you know comic book stuff um original comic book work and and that could also
0: be done in in the graphic novel realm so so I no you had mentioned doing uh a uh backstory for lazarus yes you know, that, that could be a nice standalone like mini series
1: yes and so no you're you're kind of in the ballpark and this is something that i have thought about um and it's something that I would like to do. And, and again, it's just a matter of partnering up. There's another book entirely that is a, that is not a horror. It's a fiction book, but it's, a, it's kind of a family comedy drama sort of fiction book that I've been working on. And I'm actually done writing that. And I need illustrations for that book. And I need to start working. I've got a couple of ideas for illustrators. And I think that's going to be sort of a good test for me working with illustrators on my stories and sort of getting that all going. So um yeah, time permitting and people people wanting to get involved and depending on whether they want to partner up or they want to be paid. Um, there's an artist here in St. Louis, Lorenzo. I hope I'm saying his name, his last name, right. Lorenzo Lazana, I believe is his name. Um, comic book artist here in the St. Louis area. Who's really well known and really good. Um, and there's a lot of artists working in the St. Louis area. Um, Jim Lee of marvel is actually from the st louis area and obviously i'm not going to get jim lee yeah so so you're right in the ballpark you yes i've thought about the graphic novel idea and just you know
0: time pending it's something i would love to get into yeah. i would love to get into. i might recommend uh looking into somebody that i've had on my show uh lucas kettner okay uh he just did the uh all the illustrations for uh david Dismalchin's uh count crowley comic okay which is a horror comic and he is a horror guy okay and i'm a very big fan of the older style
1: stuff like here here we go again with being the older guy um i'm not that old i'm 55 years old but my taste goes to you know i grew up on comics in the 70s and i grew up on like my version of batman is the 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 dennis Neal version or o'neill version of uh superman and uh or uh, Batman, I'm sorry. And I grew up on the uh, the creepy and the eerie comics and um, Epic Illustrated and stuff like that. So I, I go with sort of an older fashion sensibility. And stuff today, um, I'm really selective with the stuff today. Some of the graphic style and the, the lines and stuff of, of modern comics, I'm not such a big fan of.
0: You um, should definitely look into Kettner's work then.
1: Okay. All right. Um. Is that is that K E T N E R?
0: Yeah. All right. He, the work he did on Count Crowley is amazing because okay. Count Crowley's it, it's basically like an eighties, eighties uh, style B horror host. Okay. Who ends up hunting monsters?
1: Okay. There you go. I. That sounds perfect. That sounds like the sequel to. Uh to Fright Night right there. That so, sounds awesome. I
0: mean, it's It could very well be a perfect match for you.
1: And, you know, depending on the artist, depending on the person, I'd be willing to say, hey, here's the original script. Go crazy, man. But, yeah, I would love to work with somebody on it. And for what it's worth, for anyone who's out there listening who's an indie filmmaker or an indie actor or just somebody who, you know, has the regular nine-to-five day job but dreams of doing creative stuff, um, one of the things that I'm always looking towards now is, you know, it's one thing to raise money and go out and make a feature film. But to do this full time is tough, because what you really need is something that pays the rent. And what we do full time is we do a lot of interviews, we do a lot of corporate and commercial video work, we do production full time, it's not always glamorous, it's not always creative. But we do work full time in video production and that pays the bills and then that gives us the opportunity to create occasionally do our own creative filmmaking. But likewise with stuff like comic books and things like that, if you're able to build up what they call a catalog, like shadowland maybe in its initial push in its initial dvd release it wasn't that hugely successful but we still have dvds available we still have it on on amazon we still have it available streaming and now we have four color eulogy which is another film we did and we have we're helping distribute you know dnr and and bedlam street and tapestry of shadows and contamination we're we're helping distribute a whole bunch of films now. And each one of those films may only make a couple of bucks a month. But when you're distributing five or ten and they're all making a couple of bucks a month, that starts to add up. Um, yet, Just yesterday, I did an appearance uh, at a comic book store. And, yeah, one appearance at a comic book store a month does not make my rent. But... If I do a couple of comic book appearances and a couple of conventions here and there, over the course of the year, that starts to add up. So you and I have been talking about graphic novels for the last 10 minutes. Maybe one graphic novel doesn't allow me to retire, but a series of five or 10 graphic novels done over a period of time. So if you stay at it steadily and you build up a catalog and you build up a consistent body of work, that starts to add up over time. So. You know, sometimes we don't see an immediate windfall, but over time, like you talked about, you know, Muppets from Space over time has built up an audience. The Guyver films over time, yeah, they're still selling Guyver. They're still selling Guyver Dark Hero. We're still selling Shadowland. We still get a check from Amazon, uh, Amazon Prime once in a while for for Shadowland streaming. Um, so yeah, I say it, I
0: know you, you. should should just get some from me.
1: Say what? Oh, yeah. Um, So, yeah, it's – so just from a – you don't have to make a Marvel film. You don't have to make Avengers Endgame to be considered successful. There's a lot of independent artists and filmmakers out there. You've been to shows. You know that there are filmmakers out there who are making – crappy, silly, horrible horror films, but they've got an audience and they're making a bunch of them and they're selling them consistently and they're going home with some money in their pocket each time. Um, so yeah, consistency and hard work and staying at it steady and building up that library, just it adds up over time. So, So my career hasn't always been in the fast lane, but my career has been consistent enough that I'm now at a point where You know, I have a back catalog of stuff that is, you know, helping me stay afloat and helping me survive. And and I'm doing podcasts with you. So, you know,
0: it's all... (laughs) Uh, Before we get to the episodic question, there was one scene that I would kick myself in the ass for not asking about. Okay. Laura was laying on the steps of the Wolf Mausoleum. Yes. Two military-grade aircrafts (laughs) pass overhead. Yes. Now was that special effects or did you luck yes. out?
1: No. We it, that was a cool moment um and I want to say That might have been an ad lib because we might have been—I don't think that was in the original script. I think we were shooting, and we've been shooting for several days. Depending on what's going on with, like, national alert levels, like here in St. Louis, we've got, you know, we've got a small military contingent based here in St. Louis. Yeah. So— if we're on high alert or there's terrorist alerts or something, the jets are in the air. And you'll notice sometimes, like, you don't hear the jets for long periods of time. And then all of a sudden, aware of an incredibly loud roar over your, your city. And you become aware that there are F-18s or F-16s or whatever they are patrolling your your sky. So I think we were out shooting a couple of times and the jets roared overhead. And we were all just like, holy cow, that's loud. Man, that's stunning. And I think it occurred to one of us, either me or Caitlin, that, wow, can you imagine Laura, who's fresh out of the ground and totally this alien world around her? What if she got woken up to one of those damn jets? And I think we added that moment there in the, the the cemetery but then what i did later was i shot a, a miniature jet that we bought from a hobby store and this was a, a little like a snap together model kit about three or four inches long and we shot it against black and we shot it banking and turning and then took that element into the computer and made it travel across screen and because we were looking up into a bright sky against trees and a silhouette we were able to composite that into the sky fairly easily so but yes it 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 was a uh it was a visual effect that we did after the fact Son of a- yeah <laughs> and and there it didn't have to one of the nice things about that is there are things in shadowland where you go well that's an effect and we shot some stuff to look pretty like there are some shots done at night like the eighteen seven. 1897 shots where they're walking across the graveyard at night and you see the church and the moon in the background there are some shots in the film that are supposed to be very pretty and artsy looking the shots of laura uh looking up at the jets you that was supposed to go unnoticed it's that was supposed to be a visual effect shot that if you thought it was an effect shot we failed so we did it to look as realistic as possible because you know we want we wanted it to look we wanted it to look big budget, like, we actually contacted those jets and asked those jets to fly over. As I, was, opposed I was just like,
0: okay, I'm, I'm sure he has connections. Yeah. That would have been a heck of a connection, yeah. That's a hell of a connection right there. Yeah, no, we added
1: those jets later in post. And you'll notice in the film, we shot the film in St. Louis, but you didn't see the Gateway Arch and you didn't see anything that was like specifically St. Louis. And I love St. Louis. I'm very proud of St. Louis. I didn't want the city to be identifiable. So we... Interestingly
0: enough, uh, like when she was in uh, Main Street, downtown mm-hmm. Main Street, <laughs> yes. it looked like the French Quarter.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, that's very much an architectural style that is similar to the French Quarter. But that's good because what I... I didn't want people... As soon as you acknowledge a town, and I, and like I said, I love St. Louis. But as, as soon as you say it's taking place in Chicago, it's taking place in New York, it's taking place in St. Louis, you identify specifics. So if you say something's taking place in New York, but you shoot it in Toronto, suddenly it becomes very obvious. If you say it's taking place in New York or uh, Chicago, but then you shoot it in Springfield, Illinois, people know. By shooting it in St. Louis, but not acknowledging it was St. Louis, it could be like any town USA. Any moderately large Midwestern city, like if you're in Cincinnati, you can assume this is in Cincinnati. If you're in Rapid City, you can assume this is in Rapid City. If you're in, you know champagne urbana or nashville or like you said new orleans you can assume it's your town so i wanted it to just kind of feel like generic large midwestern city is what i wanted it to feel like so other times we've acknowledged that we're in st louis it's it's happening in st louis this time we just we wanted it to just be kind of your town usa is what we wanted it to be
0: was your car the hero car
1: the mini cooper yeah yes it was i thought
0: so because i was I was like, wait a minute. They said they have a Mini Cooper.
1: Yes. Um, My wife, uh, at the time, she was just my girlfriend. She's now my wife. But my wife had a 2005 Red Mini Cooper. And we wanted kind of a cool vehicle for the vampire hunter, Julian, to drive. And rather than rent and keep a vehicle the entire time, we... I thought, well, Mini Cooper, that's a cool little car. And the thing about the Mini Cooper is it's small enough and maneuverable enough. It can go just about anywhere. And I think uh, uh, the Italian job had just been released like yeah. the, year, the year, year or two before. And the Italian job, of course, they do so many fun things with the cars. And I, I said, can your Cooper – be the hero car in the film and she's like oh yeah absolutely so there's that scene where the mini cooper comes whipping out of a driveway backwards and does like a reverse spin um and that was my wife dressed in jason's costume actually doing the stunt driving um jason was not a very good driver all right he, I, I now
0: have a new appreciation for gail
1: she um jason (laughs) jason was not good on a stick shift but that was gail's car and gail knew how to drive a stick so any driving in the film that was precision like where the car had to narrowly miss somebody or narrowly avoid hitting the camera or do a reverse spin it was actually gail behind the wheel and there were one or two shots where i think we had to go in and darken down her face so you couldn't see that it was her but yeah, especially that reverse spin out the driveway. Um, she really? rehearsed that. that. Yeah, she rehearsed that until she knew how to do it. Because it's counterintuitive. Because I think you have to, like, your your temptation is to spin the wheel and flip the car and, like, hit the brakes. But then you kill the engine. And you actually have to, like, take your foot off the gas but not hit the brake and not kill the engine. So. Yeah, she was she was able to figure out how to do it, and then there were other shots where just if the car was going to be whipping down the road, we needed her to drive it because, like I said, Jason could Jason could pull up and stop and start, but Jason had never driven a stick before. So yeah, we we couldn't trust that Jason wouldn't hit and kill somebody if we tried to have him do it. So <laughs> oh yeah, and I I am still to this day very proud of Shadowland. Um, I think I would do things differently now, and I also. I think just as a director can get more to the point more quickly, and I can keep things moving along faster. I think if I had Shadowland to do over again, I would move it along quicker. But I, I'm still, as far as a first feature film is concerned, I'm very proud of all the directors I know who did a first feature film. I felt like I was probably the most prepared. I, I worked on a lot of guys' first films, and I think I learned a lot from their mistakes. I learned a lot from what they did. Um, so I, I was really happy with, with Shadowland. Well, normally I, I would
0: put you on the spot and put you in a uh, horror situation based on the movie we talked about. But given your uh, skill set, I want to ask you a different question. Uh, okay. I put you on the spot here. If you could tackle any property and make it into a movie, what would it be and why? Ooh, that is an Excellent, excellent question.
1: Um, without a doubt, without hesitation, um, and I've got a I've got a first, I've got a primary, and then I've got like two runners up. Um, I am a huge fan of HP Lovecraft, and if I had my wish, I would do a feature film version of At the Mountains of Madness. And I know that various—I know that various filmmakers have talked about doing that. I know Guillermo del Toro has talked about doing it. I actually, many years ago, wrote—I've written a, a screenplay. I've written an adaptation about the Mountains of Madness, and I would love to do it. And it—and I probably—I don't know if *At the Mountains of Madness* is in the public domain or not yet. It's a lot of Lovecraft's work is questionable legally because he didn't copyright a lot of work in his own lifetime and other people copyrighted his work much later. So whether or not Lovecraft work is in the public domain is a question of debate, but I would love to do at the mountains of madness as a feature film. I've written a script. I know how I would do it. It could be big budget. It could be small budget. It could be whatever. Um, So at the mountains of madness is number one. And then there's a novel by a man named Graham Masterton. Uh, Graham Masterton, they did a film based on his book, uh, The Manitou, um, which is an old film that I just absolutely love. But he did a film called The Devils of D-Day. And The Devils of D-Day is just a fantastic story where the, the premise is that in World War II, we essentially defeated the Nazis because we made a deal with these demons of war. And we took these demons of war and we gave them a regiment of tanks and sent them across the German countryside. And these demons of war just wrecked havoc and basically destroyed the German army. And then we made a deal to, like, give these demons a virgin and let them take the virgin and disappear. But we left—one of the tanks broke down on the battlefield, and rather than let the demon free, we sealed the tank and put crosses on it and blessed the tank, and we left the demon inside the tank— And now in modern day, a photographer photographing these old World War II sites finds this old tank sitting on the battlefield and starts hearing something talking to him. And he ends up opening the tank and letting this very, very pissed off demon out into the world. Um, That is an incredibly creepy and incredibly cool um, story that
0: I would love to do. That would be Um, a good movie.
1: And then... Uh, believe it or not, Jason Contini and I have actually talked about this. We've talked about doing our own version of, direct, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Frankenstein. And Frankenstein's been done to death, but I don't know if anybody's really done a good, accurate portrayal of the novel. Um, you do I Frankenstein. Think, I want in on it. Okay. That's fair enough. Um and uh, my inspiration would be uh, the Bernie Wrightson version, the Bernie Wrightson illustrations. Um, Frankenstein is a, tall and skinny and huge and yellow skinned. And just I, I, I want to do a very gothic, very creepy um, version of it people i think tend to try and go to to action adventure to big budget again i'd want to do something that's smaller and creepier make the monster sympathetic yet horrible well, i think got- back to the universal but- hammer era well yes and no i think
0: uh, I, say, I think they've gotten it closer than yes. just about anybody else
1: if, if anything i think hammer i love the hammer versions um I think hammer is a good way to go. Yeah. I think you, you mix sort of the hammer sensibility and the hammer efficiency with some some modern special effects. Um, I'd love to do a lot of forced perspective, like in-camera tricks, where you shoot the actor playing Frankenstein closer to the camera so he's bigger. So he's like seven and a half or eight feet tall with Victor Frankenstein positioned a couple of feet further back so that it looks like Frankenstein is bigger than he is. Um, and so Frankenstein is way high on the list in terms of of things. So so yeah, I, those would be in descending order. Like at the Mountains of Madness, the Devils of D-Day, and then a version of Frankenstein. Um, I personally have been working on a a script that I want to shoot as my next feature um, that is very Lovecraft inspired. It's it's kind of a cross between Evil Dead and H.P. Lovecraft, where Evil Dead had elements of Lovecraft, but Um, Evil Dead was more just straight-up horror. I I like the idea of meshing, you know, the person alone out in the isolated cabin or the house meshed with that weird, unearthly thing that's been in the world for a very, very long time coming back to terrorize you. Um, But do you remember the movie from the 70s with Karen Black called Trilogy of Terror? Yeah. Okay. Okay. The episode with the little Zuni fetish doll that comes to life and chases her around the apartment. Take take one part Evil Dead, one part Trilogy of Terror, and one part H.P. Lovecraft and mix them together. And that's what I want to do. I basically want to strand a guy in a house, like on vacation. He's gone off to do research and, you know, there are many bad things that go wrong and many bad things that happen. And he ends up isolated in another dimension in his house with weird things going on. And I I just, I want it to be fast paced and scary as hell and in your face. And this time I'm going to do everything that we didn't do on Shadowland. with, I'm not going to back away from the nudity. I'm not going to back away from the blood. I'm not going to back. I'm not even caring about rating. I'm just going to go in your face. See if I can scare you to death. See if I can keep you up. Make the movie you want to make. Yes keep you on the edge of your seat for an hour and a half. I just I and a thrill ride. I I do like movies that you know there's a point to there's a point to horror, there's a point to scaring you. And some movies I think like the first Saw film I really enjoyed. The later Saw films to me were just they were they they talk about splatter porn or endurance porn and the later Saw films to me they lost that sense of suspense, they lost that thrill of horror um and a movie like jaws to me a, a movie like jaws people don't think of jaws as a horror film jaws is a total horror film and jaws goes somewhere between grossing you out and scaring you to death and then exhilarating you and it thrills you and the movie alien the movie alien is so thrilling because it scares you and it makes you tense and and then it gives you victory and it it, it you know, Sigourney Weaver is saved in the end. And it's just, it's a thrill ride. And I like so horror film. with
0: every emotion.
1: And then, and it rewards you at the end. It doesn't just keep beating you down. I have a problem with Eli Roth as a filmmaker because I think he's a skilled filmmaker, but his films like Hostel and uh, The Green Inferno, these movies just, they pummel you. And a movie like Green Inferno, it's like, it's almost like endurance filmmaking. It's endurance horror where can you make it to the end of this film? And even a film like Dawn of the Dead, the original, and to a certain degree the, the the reboot, but Dawn of the Dead, yeah, it was graphic and it was horrible, but it was social commentary and it was fun and it you know, it played with your emotions and who's gonna live and who's gonna die and what's the resolution and it and it rewarded you for your two hours of endurance and that's more the kind of thing that I like to do. Yeah, um has Jaws. to be a payoff. <laughs> yes. At the end of Jaws, he kills the shark. The shark explodes. He declares victory. Hooper is still alive. They swim to shore. Yay. It's such a satisfying thing. So I want to scare you and make things jump out at you and gross you out. But at the end, I want to reward you. For sticking with me for an hour and a half, I don't want to just beat you upside the head with as much horrible as possible, and then leave you feeling wrung out. So that's that's where my that's where my
0: brain is at with this stuff. It's always nice to get somebody else's take, and I've joked about this on your uh, Facebook page that you know we're we're the same person, but we have very similar uh, thoughts on a lot of things. Apparently, yes. Uh, but yeah, yeah, it's interesting to hear, you know, other people's take on what they consider horror and what wh- I mean, what's I'm scary not, it, for them, what works for them.
1: And- I'm a fan of a lot of the things that other horror fans are. It's just I don't I I don't have an unconditional affection. Like um I know there are a lot of like I am I cannot believe that horror fans have lined up repeatedly, over and over and over, and had an undying fascination with uh, Jason. Uh, I'm sorry, Michael Myers, and and Halloween. Halloween, man, I was there for the first one. I was there for the second one, even the third one because it was just so weird. And then you started going four, five, six reboot one, reboot two, this, that, the, and I was just like, okay, you're, you, I'm not gonna. I'm not an abused ch- I'm not an abused child. I'm not going to show up time and time again even though you're not treating me right. Um and there are other films like uh Friday the 13th. And like you'd get me for some of them and then you'd lose me for others. And Predator, same thing with Predator. Predator 1 I'm there. Predator 2, uh okay. Then you start getting the Alien vs. Predator. Well, maybe. Then Alien vs. Predator, Requiem. I'm like, no, you lost me. Predators, you got me back. The Predator, you lost me again. I, The Alien films. Alien 1, yes. Alien, Aliens, awesome. Alien 3, eh. Alien, re, Alien uh, Resurrection. Well, that was fun, but it wasn't an Alien film. And then by the time you got to Prometheus and Covenant, it's like, you you have to reward me. I am a fan of Batman. I love Batman, but you can only abuse me so much and you gave me you gave me uh Batman versus Superman and you know, you kind of lost me and then you gave me Justice League and you lost me more. And so It's like you have to, even though you've got me for something, you have to treat me right. So I respect the fans who come back over and over again, and it's like, they don't care. It's Jason Voorhees, or it's Michael Myers, or it's Freddy. They come back again and again and again. Freddy Krueger. I was there for the first couple of films, and then it started going off the rails, and then they got me back for, like, Freddy versus Jason. They got me back for Freddy's new nightmare, but I don't unconditionally show up because it's Freddy. It's, you've got to... You, you still got to give me the quality. You got to deliver. You got to give me something that's valid as opposed to just uh, just rehashing it. The Terminator films. Man, Terminator 1 and Terminator 2 are just awesome. But I saw this last one, Dark Fate, and although I think it was a very well-made film with some good stuff, it was such a rehash of everything that had come before. I was like, no, sorry guys, you got you to gotta treat me better than that. I don't want to give you a Shadowland sequel that is the exact same film. I want to give you a shadowline film that is a progression of what came before. And you know if her story reaches a climax, it reaches a climax, it's time to stop and move on. Even if I make a million dollars, it's time to stop and move on and go to the next hey, don't story. Don't for money. Milk exactly. story. Exactly. Now, I will grant you, I'm not sitting on I'm not sitting on a in a company like Disney that makes a billion dollars per movie. It's probably pretty hard for them to stop when the last film makes a billion and the next film makes a billion. It's, no, I don't want to make another billion. There's probably a lot of stockholders and a lot of executives sitting around going, come on, you've made a billion dollars twice in a row. You've got to go make a billion dollars again. It's I, I don't know what that kind of pressure is like. But for me personally at this point, it's like if I finish my story and I tell my story, then it's it's time. There's so many stories to be told. I'm not done with Shadowland, but I have so many other stories to tell and so many other things I want to do. I, I can't spend the rest of my life on Shadowland. I'll dabble in Shadowland, but man, I got, I've got i got a lot of other things to do. So so at some point in time, it's like, you know, this is all the Shadowland you get because now I'm going to move on and I'm going to do this.
0: So. Why don't you tell our uh, listeners where they can find you and keep up on uh, updates with... Current and upcoming projects.
1: Well, I am on Facebook, of course. I'm Wyatt Weed on Facebook. The Dark Knight, an epic fan film, has its own Facebook page, and then my wife runs a fun page called "So I Married a Predator," <laughs> and and she posts she posts stuff about what I'm doing professionally and and my my appearances here and there. Um, I have a u. I have an a. Uh, an actual website which is whiteweed.com and whiteweed.com doesn't have so much of the updates that's more facebook but whiteweed.com has information about my film career and biography and some of the things I've worked on um and then of course uh stuff is available like you said on 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 Amazon Prime for for streaming but um m- most of it is you can keep up with me on on facebook on my facebook page and uh um, then the next thing I'm definitely doing is, uh, I'm definitely doing Peoria Con in Peoria, Illinois. And I'm sorry, the exact date is escaping me, but I want to say it's like the second weekend of, of March. Uh, I will be at Peoria Con, which is a one day show. It's a one day show on, and you know what? I'm going to look at the calendar real quick because now I feel like a big tease. <laughs> I want to say it's March 7th in Peoria. So, Peoria Con, I'll be there for the day and I'll be signing Predator and Star Trek photos. And I even, you'll be happy to know that I now have Guyver photos. Did I have Guyver photos? Uh, I don't think so, no. Okay, I have Guyver photos now. I have a couple of photos of me, f- me on set as Donnie, and then me working on special effects. So the next time you and I bump into each other, I'll have to get you some Guyver photos. But I'll be is signing- such a letdown. I'm so mad. <laughs> but I'll be signing Predator. I'll be signing Star Trek. And if you've got Predator stuff or Star Trek stuff, I don't sign or I don't charge to sign people's stuff. If you've got a Predator Two DVD or you got a Predator Two poster, you got a pop. You got an action figure, bring it to me, I will sign it. But my wife and I'll be there and we usually have lots of we have lots of swag and lots of merchandise and you know, toys and hot wheels and various things that we sell. But uh, you know, as you know, I'm always up for talking to the fans. Um don't ask me for an autograph in the bathroom, don't hang it out at my table for two hours and we'll be great.
0: <laughs> he's happy to talk to you, he's happy to sell you stuff. I'm happy to talk to you, I'm happy to sell you stuff. Yeah, that's absolutely true. So you can find him on Facebook. You can find me on Facebook at Musa's Marvelous Wood Burnings and more, or on the on the newer Twitter page EMC Monster Mash on Twitter, or head over to electronicmediacollective dot com. Find this podcast and many other great podcasts. And I want to thank Wyatt for coming on the show today. Thank you. This was a lot of fun. This was a, this was a good talk. And uh, about going to wrap it up for us. So until next time, mashers, mash on.